Judges 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. One of the things that will become obvious as we read this, the battle we're going to discuss is up in the Jezreel Valley, which is the flat valley that runs from southeast and northwest, north of the Carmel Mountains and south of Lebanon. Large, flat area. And the battle we're going to talk about is going to be in the eastern part of that valley. But one of the things that is fairly obvious is the Midianites are mounted, which is to say they're riding on animals, and they will also raid the coastal plain. So they'll go down through the pass at Megiddo and raid the coastal plain. The Israelites tend to be mostly in the central hills, the ridge route that runs north and south. So when it says here that they're in caves and stuff like that, I'm assuming they're mostly in the hill country, and that obviously is this area here. And you notice the central ridge runs north and south, and the top of the central ridge up here dumps out into the Jezreel Valley. And we're going to find that the battle we're going to be talking about is up in this area. Some of the locations there's some question about. I'm not sure I agree with the battle map I'm going to show you, but we'll get there. So anyway, the idea is the Midianites are rumbling around on the flat ground, either the coastal plain or the, or the Jezreel Valley, and the Israelites are sort of pulled back up into the hills and they're hiding. One of the things about the Jezreel Valley is it is, in addition to being good chariot country, it's also good wheat country. You know, it's like Kansas, right? Large, flat, and you grow a lot of grain there. One of the things that's going to happen is that the Midianites are going to scarf up the harvest as soon as it gets processed. So verse 3. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. And of course you all know that Gaza is down here on the coast. And you've got this wide flat plain that runs along the Mediterranean. And you've got this wide flat plain that runs across Israel up here. And of course, the pass through there is at Megiddo. So if the Midianites are scarfing up grain here and on the coastal plain all the way down to Gaza, that sort of indicates that they're mounted and they are staying to the flat country. I'm sure some of them go up into the hills, but that's not the main problem. The problem is the flats. And again, that's where some of your best wheat growing, grain growing, cattle grazing, all that kind of stuff. That's where that is. So verse 4 again, they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So the idea here is 
they're coming, they're riding on camels. Certainly Arabs do eat camels, but mostly Arabs ride camels. But the point here is they are mobile and they're mounted and so they basically stay to the flats because that's where they have an advantage. The other thing is they would just sort of wait for the harvest and when the harvest was ready they would come in and steal it. Verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up out of Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and I drove them out before you and gave you their land and I said to you I am the Lord your God you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell but you have not obeyed my voice verse 11 now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah now there's some question as to where Oprah is um, there is an Oprah that is south of Shechem, which is in this area right here. And there's also an Oprah which is up here in the Jezreel Valley. And it isn't known which one we're talking about. Both of them are in the land of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. The maps that I have that show Oprah in the Jezreel Valley have a question mark beside them. As in, we think that might be right, but we're not sure. So, 11 again. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abeazrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, the other thing that most of you know is rushing floors are usually situated on a ridge. In fact, the threshing floor of Aruna where Jerusalem is built is on a ridge and the idea there is you get a natural flow of air over the ridge so when you thresh grain what you do is thresh it with a threshing sledge or by hand if you have to so you beat the grain and the grain and the chaff are all there mixed up so what you then do is you take a basket and you scoop up the mix and you throw it up in the air and the wind then blows the chaff which is lighter than the grain the grain falls pretty much straight down the chaff falls away from there in the direction the wind is blowing so you get a pile of chaff somewhere downwind and you get a pile of clean grain where you're standing that's the way it works in order for that to work you need wind so typically threshing floors are built on a ridge where you have a natural flow of air over the ridge for those of you who are surveyors and geologists, you know about upslope breeze. For those of you who aren't and aren't hunters, in the morning as the land warms up, air will flow up a mountain or up the side of a hill and then over. It's what's called an upslope breeze. And during the night, when it gets cold, it'll flow down. So the flow of air is very predictable over a ridge. You can count on it if you got to thresh grain. Threshing grain in a wine press is not ideal, shall we say. There's no wind there because you're down in a pit, which is where you'd press your wine. 
So the idea here is they are threshing their grain in secret so the Midianites won't find it and steal it. Obviously the idea here is that they are pretty much terrified. Verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon, who me? And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recount to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So that should obviously take you back to Deuteronomy 31, which is just before the Song of Moses. And I'll pick it up in verse 16, Deuteronomy 31, 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them and the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. So Gideon is playing his part just exactly like God told Moses he would play it. In other words, the angel of the Lord shows up to Gideon and says, Hail, mighty man of valor! And you're going to deliver Israel. And Gideon says, yeah, then how come all this bad stuff is happening to us if you're with us? Which is just exactly what Moses said they would say. Just like all human beings, they want the benefits of the covenant, they want the blessing, but they don't want the responsibilities. There are lots and lots of people in the body of Messiah that have that attitude. They want the blessings, but they don't want the responsibilities. The question was, how long between Moses' saying that and Gideon saying what he's saying? And you remember the generation that came out of the wilderness and fought for the land perished. And then you had another generation that came up. And then the third generation started going after other gods. And we've had several judges that have intervened. So a fair amount of time. So anyway, the point is... Gideon is reciting Moses, verse 14 now. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And that's going to be a theme for the rest of this story. What God is going to do is he is going to save Israel using the least obvious choice. He finds this kid who is threshing floor in a wine press because he's terrified of the Midianites. And he says, I'm the youngest in my father's house. And furthermore, my father's tribe is the smallest in Manasseh. So the idea here is he is not picking the strongest, the brightest, and the bravest. He is picking the lowliest he can find. And the idea, of course, there is when Gideon does finally deliver Israel, the only way that it makes any sense is if God does it. 
And we'll see that theme repeated, by the way. Verse 16. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and ye shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And again, we've talked about this before. Early in the Bible, which this is, the membrane, if you will, between the spiritual world and our world seems to have been fairly porous. And you have lots of examples where somebody is minding his own business, threshing grain, killing Philistines, you know, doing something, and somebody walks up and starts talking to him, and it's only after a while in the conversation that he realizes, wait a minute, this isn't a person, this is somebody from the spirit world. And so the idea here is this guy has walked up to Gideon and said, you're going to deliver Israel. And Gideon says, uh, yeah, okay. Um, so how do I know that? In other words, how do I know that you aren't some itinerant salesman with a three-day pass and a briefcase? I need some authentication here is what he's saying. Verse 18. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring you out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. Now, I don't know what's happened here. Mama Gideon may have had goat stew brewing on the stove and he just went and scarfed some up and brought it or he may have started from scratch the way Abraham did. Remember Abraham sent somebody to the flock and said go get a young animal and you go need some cakes and, and so forth. So it isn't clear how long he's gone but if he's starting from scratch like Abraham did he's been gone a couple of hours easily. By the time you make cakes and bake them and you get broth ginned up from a freshly killed animal and so forth. It'll be a couple of hours. As I say, Mama Gideon may have had some simmering on the stove and he just went and got it. Don't know. So Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff, which was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Lightning fast mind there. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. And again, we haven't said it in a while, but we used to say it all the time, or at least I did. Sort of the standard reaction when someone is confronted with the angel of the Lord is he goes down like a sack of rocks. Very often has to have a change of toga. That was the case with Manoah, Samson's father. Case here, he realizes what's happened, he says, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. And he has to be reassured. What was the first thing the angels said when they came to announce the birth of Yeshua? Fear not. 
That was the first thing they said, don't be afraid. So when one of these angelic beings shows up, the natural human reaction is terror. So 23 again. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is Peace. That's Jehovah Shalom. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asheroth that is beside it. And of course we've said before, an Asheroth is like a totem pole. And notice that the altar of Baal belongs to whom? His own daddy. And what we're going to find is his daddy appears to be something of a priest of Baal in the region. Let's continue and we'll talk about that in a second. Pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And the one bull is the tractor. So he hitches the bull to the Asherah and probably some of the stones and drags them out of the way. And of course the second one is the sacrifice. And he also has to cut up the Asherah to make firewood. So the fact that it's done by night is interesting, but it isn't quiet. This is not something that probably got done quietly. So when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. So what that tells me is the Asherah and the altar were for the whole town. And that means that Gideon's dad was the local official or officiant, or I don't know whether it could be a priest, I don't know what they call him. But he is the local representative of Baal in the town. The altar's on his property, the Asherah's on his property, but everybody around there is upset when they're destroyed, which indicates to me, as I said, that it is the worship place of Baal for the entire town, perhaps the region. Understand, Gideon did not do this courageously. He obeyed, but remember, he did it in the middle of the night so nobody would see him. and He wouldn't have to contend with people walking up and saying, what are you doing? Gideon will eventually become brave. He isn't brave at the moment. It's going to take a while for him to get there. And the other thing that's interesting, and this is pure speculation on my part, just total speculation, the fact that his dad was the local priest of Baal may in fact be why Gideon was chosen. Because if Gideon was the kid from two streets over 
and he comes and tears down the altar, then his dad is not going to be able to protect it. Because one of the things that happens here is when the people come out and say, we've got to kill your son, he said, no, we're not going to do that. And the reason he can make that stick is because he has been the priest of Baal. And that's purely speculation on my part. Scripture does not say that. But I'm sort of wondering if that wasn't part of the reason why Gideon was the one that was chosen. Not that the angel of the Lord couldn't protect the kid from two streets down if he'd chosen him, but it would have been a different dynamic. 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. So what he's saying is a couple of things. Thing one, this should remind you of Elijah and the priests of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. And what he's saying is... uh, If this is really a god, he can defend his own dang altar. Comment was, this may be where Elijah got the idea. A couple of things I'm suggesting are going on, and this is again some of it's speculation. If Gideon's father was the priest of Baal, and Gideon's father believed that Baal had power, his own kid coming and taking everything down and doing a sacrifice to Jehovah on that spot probably shook his faith, shall we say. So when these guys come against him and say, we need to kill your son, first off, of course, it's his son, and that can be a problem. But the second thing is, wait a minute, if Baal is as powerful as we think he is, how did the kid get away with this? So what he says here is, if Baal's a god, let him figure it out. And furthermore, he says, if anybody kills Gideon, he himself will die by morning. Which I am suggesting to you indicates that my son is being protected by Jehovah. So the comment was, at this point, of course, they had the Torah with the Avenger of Blood. What could be going on here is the father says, I am the near kinsman, which is to say I would be the Avenger. So if you kill my son, I will kill you before the day is out. That could be what's being said. And that's a good explanation, one I had not thought of. The comment was, could it also be possible that Gideon's dad was basically a charlatan and a scam artist, knew Baal had no power whatsoever, and was simply going to protect his son. Again, all those are possible. Scripture's silent. But as I say, the tact he uses with the townsfolk is, hey, this is really a god. He'll defend his own altar. And if he can't defend his own altar, you don't need to be afraid of him. All the rest of the stuff we've been talking about is interesting, but it's speculation. Scripture doesn't say. So 32, whoever contends with him will be put to death by morning, for if he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerobal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. And you will find that name used of Gideon later on. 33. Now all the Midianites and the Melekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. 
But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called on to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. Now, obviously, everybody in the Bible knows this phrase, putting out a fleece, to see if God really wants you to do what you think he wants you to do. It is my opinion that the fleece here is not for Gideon. Because remember, Gideon has had a direct encounter with the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord consumed the the food. The angel of the Lord disappeared. And the Lord has been talking to Gideon. I don't think Gideon has any doubts. But what he's got is a whole bunch of Israelites around him. So the question then becomes, okay, Gideon, you're the youngest member of the smallest tribe in Manasseh, and you want to rally up an army and go take out the Midianites? What makes you think you can do this? So what I'm suggesting is the sign of the fleece is to authenticate Gideon to the Israelite army. Comment was, again, parallel to what's going on with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah has no doubt about who God is. The calling down of fire was for the benefit of the Israelites. And it does not say that in Scripture here. But my opinion that since he's gathered all these people at the spring of Herod, what he now has to do is convince them that he is, in fact, operating at God's behest. The idea of asking for a sign goes throughout Scripture. There's nothing inherently wrong with that unless you should know better. Moses, for example, asked for a sign, remember? And he did the business with sticking his hand in his blouse and throwing the staff down and becoming a snake and all that kind of stuff. So asking of a sign is not inherently evil. Yeshua gets grumpy with the Pharisees because of all the stuff he has done, they should be able to figure it out without additional signs. That's when he sort of gets grumpy with them. But Gideon here, I think, has perfectly legitimate reason to want to be authenticated as the commander. So all the way now down to chapter 7. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him arose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And that's the spring there that's on the south edge of the map, right in the middle. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And you can see the camp up there where the battle joins. On the map here, this would be the camp right in that area, which is north of the spring of Herod. The Lord said to Gideon, 
the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And this idea of announcing anybody who's afraid gets to go home, remember that goes clear back to the Torah. The idea there is the priest will go into the army and say, anybody here who's, who's afraid or who has married and not cohabited with his wife or has built a house and hasn't lived in it or has grown a vineyard and hasn't tasted the wine, all you people go home. God doesn't need you to do this. And that's what's being said here. So he cuts his force down by two-thirds. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Now, remember I said earlier that one of the reasons that Gideon was chosen, I believe, is because he is the youngest member of the smallest house in Manasseh. And so what we see here is the Lord keeps winnowing away the number of people, the idea being, of course, when they achieve victory, there is no possibility whatsoever that they will attribute that victory to anything except the help of God. So for again, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps shall be sent by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands, and let all the others go every man to his home. Now, we've had this conversation before. The last time we did this, you will find preachers who will come up with all sorts of, oh, the guys who picked the water up and drank out of their hand, they were looking around. They were the rangers and the Navy SEALs. They were always on alert and all that kind of stuff. I think that's nonsense. If the 300 had bent down and sucked water from the thing and the majority had picked it up in their hands, the choice would have been the other way. The deal was he wanted a minimum number of people. He didn't really care how they drank their water. It was simply a way of winnowing the people out. Because remember, he is not depending on the strength of Israel to beat the Midianites. He is depending on the Lord to beat the Midianites. So, as I say, you'll find all sorts of fanciful stories of, yeah, you know, you always want to be looking around and you don't want anybody to sneak up on you and all that kind of stuff. I don't think that has anything to do with it at all. It just happens to be the way it worked. So, verse 8. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, the word there is shofars, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And remember, at the spring, they are up on the ridge at the end of the central ridge route, so they are higher than the Midianites. Verse 9, That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, 
for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Understand what's going on here. Gideon is still very timid. So what God is doing is saying, all right, I know you're really timid and you're not ready to go attack anybody at this point. So go on down there and listen to what they're saying in the camp. And that'll give you courage. And because you're a chicken, you don't have to go along by yourself. Verse 10 again. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say. And afterwards your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell down and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, it's scripture, and and I'm okay with it, but it's sort of like, you know, those little dolls that you pull the string on, and they say, Mommy, Mommy... (laughs) The Lord has clearly pulled the string on this Midianite because there's no way he's going to know who Gideon is. Certainly he may have had a vision, and I'm not disputing this, you understand. I'm just saying it's really funny. You know, the idea that a Melekite would make that little speech about Gideon of whom he has no reason to know. Say it's scripture and I'll take it for what it said. Verse 15. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation... He worshipped, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies, and he put trumpets into the hands of all of them and emptied jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and say for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. I'm not sure why they smashed the jars instead of just taking the more dramatic, more noise and commotion. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp, beginning of the middle watch, when they just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel-Beholah by Tabath, 
Those will be down the wadi toward the Jordan. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Remember, we started with 10,000. And that got winnowed down to 300. And the surmise that you are making is 9,700 of them were in reserve. And the problem I have with that is the story is inconsistent because they were told to go home, go back to your tents. And what will happen later in chapter 8 is Gideon will pursue with his 300 men. So this 300 men stays together as a unit and is going to pursue all the way to Midian. And the other thing that is happening at the end of verse 23 is he is sending a messenger to Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh to gather troops. So when the Lord was selecting people, he first had 22,000, and the instructions to the 22,000 is go back to your tents, go home. And then we had the 10,000 get broken out into 300 plus 9,700, and the 9,700 were also told, go home. So what I am inferring is when the 300 routed the Midianites, he's got to send out a call to get these people back. And that's what verse 23 says. The comment was, which makes more sense than what I was thinking, the 9,700, when it says go back to your tents, it's talking about the tents at the spring where they had gathered. So you still have a force of 9,700 that have not dispersed back to their homes. One of the reasons that I made that mistake is because all the time in the desert, the deal is go back to your tents. So I'm thinking go back to your tents means go home. What you're thinking is go back to your tents means go back to the camp here at the spring of Herod and wait there. And that's probably a better understanding than what I have. I think that's a good explanation. So finish the chapter and we'll quit. Verse 24, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So what they're doing here is you've got Midianites that have come into Israel. He wants the rest of the Israelis to get down to the Jordan River and prevent them from crossing back and going home. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the water as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. One of the things we'll see here is Gideon with his 300 is going to pursue so that 300 men stays together. And I am reading this as Oreb and Zeb's heads get taken across the Jordan to the east to where Gideon is as he's pursuing. I think that's what's being said. <laughs>